There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Since 2013, Bombus has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com/acast and use code acast for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com/acast code acast. Welcome to Rule the World, the ultimate power of storytelling. Storytelling is what connects us as humans, and for brands, it is no different. A well-told story can effectively position your brand in the minds and hearts of your audience, and can convert thoughts and feelings into results and revenue. On this show, we dive into the unique and recurring principles of world-class storytellers from every walk of life to help you level up your storytelling skills and knowledge to drive real, measurable results for you and your organization. Here's your host. Paul Furlong. Hello and welcome to Rule the World: The Art and Power of Storytelling. My name is Paul Furlong, Creative Director at Opus Media, and I imagine you're listening to this podcast because you know the power of storytelling. Now, I want you to bring that power to your own writing with Roger Shulman at thewritercoach.com. Roger's unique coaching method connects your personal story to whatever you're writing, giving it heart and depth. The result. Your presentation, website copy, keynote address, or screenplay becomes compelling, entertaining, and persuasive. Roger is the winner of a British Academy Award and nominee for the Oscar and the Emmy. So go to thewritercoach.com and schedule a free discovery session. Let Roger bring the Hollywood to your writing. Today's guest is James E. Cutting. He's a cognitive scientist, researcher, and professor in the Department of Psychology at Cornell University in New York. He's known most recently for his research studying how the movies in American cinema have evolved over the years in their structure, their physical attributes, and their narratives. And he has published over 100 scientific papers and three books. So, James, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Can we start with you telling us a little bit about yourself and where your passion for film and for storytelling comes from? Sure.、Um, I think when I was a late teenager, I had、uh, people ask me, "Well, what do you want to do when you grow up?" And、um, I didn't know, but I said, "Well, I think I want to be either a、um, a minister, an actor, or a teacher." And it only took me a couple months to realize that's really all the same thing.、Uh, they're all storytellers of some kind. I couldn't really stomach、um, some of the things one needed to do as a minister. 
I decided that being an actor was probably a profession that um, uh, I might not succeed in. So um, becoming a teacher and then eventually an academic seemed like it was the right thing to do. And as an academic, whether we're writing or, or teaching, uh, we're basically telling stories. Um, and I can't say that I was interested in that aspect until probably about 10 years ago. Uh, and then I realized, oh, the stories I tell in class, um, I want to make them as it's a performance in class and I need to perform them reasonably well. The content is, is there. Uh, and, uh, I used to, uh, choreograph my lectures. Anytime I changed the point, I would, uh, change of position in the room and, you know, things like that. So, um, I hadn't studied stories really until I uh, started studying movies, which was about 10 years ago. And what was it that started you studying films? Was it a particular film that you watched that made you think that that was the route that you were going to take? Well, uh, yes and no. So let me tell two two pieces of a story. One is that there was certainly a time in my life, uh, particularly in the 60s and the 70s, where I felt that I saw all the important films, um, you know, Bergman, the whole, the whole deal. Um, and then, uh, you know, I <laughs> became older. I had a family. I had uh, uh, two young daughters. Uh, there was a span of what eventually turned out to be about 20 years where I saw no films. And uh, so there was this kind of gap. I wanted to understand, uh, I wanted to see the films that I had missed and I wanted to understand how things uh, had changed. The second story is one with my uh, daughters. And uh, when they were young, and let's say they were you know, four and seven, um, as happens in men, many families, we would watch the same film over and over. And the particular film we watched was Sound of Music. Um, good family film, kids like it, it's about kids, it's about adults. Um, but we watched it over and over and over and over. And uh, as we watched it, uh, I began to notice that in some scenes, there were um, the usage of different takes uh, made on different days. So there's one particular scene where there's uh, the children have overturned a boat when uh, their father comes home with a, uh, a new potential uh, wife, um, and they get all wet, and they're dressed in these pretty outlandish uh, clothes. And there's a dialogue that happens between Maria and uh, Captain Von Trapp, and uh, if you look in the background on, you know, in some of the shots, it's bright, crystal clear day, beautiful mountain in the background. And on uh, other shots, it's incredibly hazy and you can barely see the mountain at all. And it goes back and forth like seven or eight times. And, you know, this mountain takes up seemingly about a third of the screen. And yet, you know, no one really notices this. And it took me, you know maybe six or seven uh, times watching uh, The Sound of Music to really pick this up and realize uh, what was there. The fact that we don't notice such uh, things, um, I just think was incredibly uh, uh, interesting. And so when other things you know, got finished up, I finally decided, well, movies are an interesting thing to, uh, to study. Let me do it. And so what was it about the 
the stories that movies tell as opposed to the stories that maybe a play tells or a book tells or a, maybe a painting tells? What was it about the stories that movies tells that particularly interested you? Sure. Um, uh, the importance, I think, of, of movies and just popular movies is related to a concept that um, in cognitive sciences and philosophy and elsewhere is called theory of mind. And the idea is that you get a chance to um, uh, look at, to get into the heads of a protagonist or some of the other characters in a story. And they've clearly always got a problem. Something comes up, they've got something to decide, and you get to witness and also uh, go through the processes of the decision. And... Uh, this, I think, is incredibly important because these protagonists, these people, are in situations that none of us will ever experience in our life, or very few of us uh, will. But they teach us about decision-making. They teach us about, you know, how to deal with um, things that have sort of gone wrong or that are un unexpected. And, <clears throat> and that's, I think, incredibly important for us. It's, it's a wonderful source of education for us. And there's actual data um, uh, on children. When children watch movies, and this is movies, not TV shows. This is movies, not um, you know, short little plays or things like that. Children actually uh, benefit from understanding other people by witnessing uh, and being involved in a movie. Um, finding out how the protagonists or other characters actually react and what they do and how they solve their problems. So I think, I think movies are incredibly important and the stories told in movies are important. And the reason why movies, as opposed to books or other kinds of things, um, uh, are particularly important, I think, is because movies, you get to find out you know, what's happened in like an hour and a half. Uh, or and sometimes in the shorter movies for the kids, about an hour. Um, so um, this this business of figuring stuff out and finding how it turns out um, uh, is is cascaded in front of us incredibly quickly compared to what happens in the real world. I mean, if we try to figure out what a neighbor is thinking or something, it may take years. If we're trying to figure out what's going on in... Uh, a particular family member's mind, you know, that may take days or weeks or even even longer. In a movie, we can do it in 90 minutes. And that, I think, is incredibly useful for us because we can find out about how people think. I mean, we interact with people all the time. This is a chance to uh, carry that out. And to say that a little bit further, you, you talk in your, uh, in the paper that you wrote entitled Narrative Theory and the Dynamics of Popular Movies, about the fact that popular movies follow a general narrative formula that's been perfected over time. And so we watch a movie and generally they can become quite predictable. Um, but you say that that can be quite a good thing. So why do you think it's important that we hear the same stories told over and over again with the same structure? Uh, and what's the psychological impact of this, do you think? Right, so let me divide that up a little bit. I think that the structure of uh, at least uh, popular movies in the English language, um, mostly American movies, but also uh, it's very difficult to say what a Hollywood movie is these days when, you know, it's filmed in New Zealand and post-production is done in Germany and, and other kinds of things. But these are 
Hollywood movies and popular movies, um, uh, they, they have the same structure, but they don't have the same content. So when you say we're watching the same movie, we're watching a, a similar structure. We're, we're having expectations about the kinds of things that will happen, but just as you know, one can claim that every person is different, one can also claim that every movie is different. Nonetheless, one can, for people, make generalized kind of comments about what people are like uh, in general. Um, and uh, we can also, uh, or at least my project has been to uh, make estimates about how uh, popular movies are in general. So um, they tend to have, not every movie, but you know, most uh, movies, uh, tend to start with a um, what I call a prologue. It's usually only about two to four minutes long, and it basically sets up the time and place, the location where the story is going to take place. Soon after that, uh, we get into what's called a setup, and we're introduced to the major characters and their goals. Uh, and and it, the setup is basically a kind of slice of life. There's not typically a whole lot that's interesting there. I mean, it's a kind of status quo um, uh, situation. Uh, and then something happens. Uh, it's sometimes called an inciting incident. Um, there are lots of other terms for this kind of thing. And that incident uh, causes the, eventually anyway, the causes, uh, the protagonist or the protagonists to change their goals or to change the immediate goal, to, to try to do something or fix something or something like that. And that may mull about in their minds for a while. And, uh, then there is something that's, uh, it's called the lock-in and the lock-in means, yeah, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to try to do this. So the bulk of the movie is really then about um, doing this task, accomplishing this goal, um, and it can be sometimes divided into one or two separate parts. Uh, most, I think, most movies uh, typically have two parts, uh, one of them, uh, two parts before the conclusion. Uh, one of them is called the uh, complication, and this complication is essentially dealing with this new situation where uh, you had this new goal, you're trying to accomplish this goal. Sometimes the complication ends with a first failure. Um, uh, you didn't reach the goal, something went wrong, some new information has happened, you have to, you have to deal with this. So what follows is sometimes called the development, and the development is typically where the protagonist really has to completely bear down, focus completely on this um, uh, this goal sometimes enlists uh, other characters, uh, so the development sometimes has uh, a bunch of uh, cross-cut sections where the protagonist and um, uh, his or her henchmen are also uh, working in different locales to get something done, uh, uh, trying to coordinate their uh, their efforts. And then the, the, the final large section of the film is called the climax. And, you know, if it's an action film, it's usually a, a fight or a battle. Um, if it's uh, a drama, it's uh, usually finally perhaps a confrontation of the protagonist with uh, a boss or, or, or something like that. If it's a comedy, uh, it might be um, 
the, the protagonist would still have had a uh, a goal, particularly in a romantic comedy. In a in a romantic comedy, this is where the protagonist uh, sort of couples up with uh, uh, the particular individual that they uh, were targeting. And then most films have what's called an epilogue, and an epilogue is um, a essentially a restating of the status quo. I mean, one of the things I like is the notion of, I mean, there's an important book in American, uh, now he must be a British author, Tilliard, on the um, Elizabethan world picture. And uh, the note was that in Shakespearean plays, it's often the case that you start out with a kind of setup and how the world uh, fits. And then the end of the uh, play has a restoration of a status quo. Um, that is, you return to either what was going on or you you leave the movie, uh, in, movie in this case, the story, you leave it in a situation where it looks like it's stable. Uh, maybe it's the old stability that was there, maybe it's a, a new stability, but that, so, that sort of ends it. And, you know, that's the general structure, what... what what corresponds to that are changes in shot duration and changes in uh, music. And uh, there are a number of changes that generally correspond uh, with that. But, I mean, I would say, again, the content is, is, can vary enormously. Um, and you can have flashbacks and you can have all kinds of other stuff that, uh, that go on. And they don't really change this, uh, this structure all that much. And so what do you think the benefit is of uh, hearing this same structure over and over again? Yeah, it's an important question. Uh, I think there, I mean, I think audiences bring to movies a set of expectations. And I think filmmakers have a kind of implicit contract with those viewers to fulfill at least some of those. Uh, I think if you fulfilled all of those expectations, you would probably have a boring movie. But you need to fulfill uh, some of those so that the viewer has the satisfaction of uh, being able to predict stuff. Um, as we go around in the world all the time, we are predicting what's going to happen next. And if we are wrong, then we have to readjust and things like that. So. You want a viewer to be able to predict some of the stuff that's going to happen. So I think that's one of the causes uh, of this. But another thing, and this is sort of more broadly cultural and gets back to sort of <laughs> my motivations when I was uh, uh, trying to think about either being a minister or an actor or a teacher. Um, I mean, stories are the basis of culture, and they really always have been. Uh, and uh, stories sometimes are uh, uh, justifying the current system. Stories are sometimes uh, antagonistic to uh, the current system. I mean, stories are really how we get, um, uh, get people involved, how we get listeners involved in, in, in things. There has to be a component of emotion uh, uh, it's, it's you know sort of very much uh, something that's stories are all around us and we use them all the time and they uh, there's a very high premium on uh, telling a story well 
although I think uh, telling a story well is going to vary a lot on uh, context. Do you think using this formula um, where it where it is maybe a little predictable does detract a little bit from the story that you're telling? Uh, if you take horror films, for example, if we know where the jump's coming or the scare's coming, does that detract a little bit? And the same in uh, maybe in a larger context of stories? Uh, if it detracted, then no one would go see horror films. And yet horror films are one of the most popular uh, genre out there. And they're often among the cheapest films to make. So they make a lot of money, <laughs> uh, comparatively uh, speaking. And I think, you know, people enjoy emotional swings. And the safety of a theater or television or even watching a movie on your cell phone, the safety, safety of being the observer of one of these things is uh, interestingly conflated with the actual emotions uh, that are there. I mean, you can watch a horror film. Simultaneously, you are, you are safe. And simultaneously, you are you have the bejesus scared out of you. And people like that. People like the emotional swings uh, when they're done in a, uh, a safe situation. So you've, meant, you've mentioned the word emotion a couple of times uh, in the last couple of minutes. So looking at this, maybe removed a little bit from uh, cinema, maybe looking at it from more of a macro viewpoint. Uh, and maybe uh, looking at it from a more more of a psychological uh, viewpoint. Um, how do you think that storytelling affects our our emotion and maybe our perception of things? I don't think you have a really for, it, to have a good story. You have to have an emotional content. You have to have you know I can I can you know so here's a really dull story. Uh, I have a headache. I go to the pharmacy. I buy ibuprofen. I take one, and my headache's gone. That's pretty dull. And yes, headaches involve pain, and then people may, um, you know, commiserate with that. But you have to engage uh, a listener, and the way to engage a listener is to appeal to emotions. I will say that there's sort of a contemporary viewpoint in cognitive science is that you can't really separate cognition and emotion anyway. It's not like there are two separate brain areas or anything else. Emotion is something which we summon to improve memory. It's, uh, we, 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 uh, emotion is used to stimulate action on our part to things. Emotion is really not separable uh, from perception or cognition in any, I think, useful way. Um, but uh, stories to be effective since emotions are so important to uh, individuals, stories to be effective have to um, appeal to emotions. And sometimes the emotions that are important are things like surprise, as in a horror film, or uh, the emotions can, can be all over the place. And one of the things that we know about emotions, I mean, the, the typical research in emotions uh, talks about, you know, five or six states as if they are static. So there's anger and happy and sad and, and all of those kinds of things. That's not really true about people and it's not really true about movies. Uh, emotional states are mixtures of lots of different things and they have different trajectories. So, you know, in watching a movie or listening to a story, you may start out 
uh, kind of an anger and you may go uh, to sadness. You may have both a combination of anger and sadness and it may drift into um, uh, some state of, of not necessarily happiness but uh, satisfaction or other kinds of things. Emotions are very dynamic and multidimensional. And uh, we, stories, uh, stimulate the, the whole multidimensional space of, um, of emotion. And I think movies are really quite successful at, at, at doing that. You mentioned there as well uh, the word memory when, with relation to cognition. Is there an element of um, when someone's telling a, a story well, uh, tapping into some of these memories and, and does that help to trigger some emotions? Yeah, good question. Um, so, I mean, to tell a good story, you have to make sure that your audience remembers important elements of that story. Uh, and in, in movies, of course, there's sometimes vague references to these kinds of things. Uh, there are things that are kind of put out there that later become, uh, important. So if you watch a film for a second time, you can see that there are obvious things that are, that are there first time around. They weren't obvious, but they probably, uh, acted as, as primes for things that, uh, uh, came up. So memory is important there. Um, and of course, you know, we all have memories about, you know, our own personal lives. And, uh, when we watch a, a protagonist do something or whatever, that is probably going to have, uh, some, uh, synergy with our own personal experience. And so we bring our own personal histories and, uh, to everything that we experience, particularly to movies and storytelling. And we immediately, um, either identify or don't identify uh, with those things. We recognize that they're similar or they're different and we assess uh, uh, what's going on uh, there. So, yeah, memories are, um, you know, again, we can't really separate memories too much from emotions or cognitions or other kinds of things, but memory is incredibly important. So what, what specific elements do you think a story needs to resonate on an emotional level? Interper interpersonal conflict, but more important, intrapersonal conflict. I think this gets back to a theory of mind, but if you watch a character and the character is, if you will, of two minds, uh, one to go one direction, one to go another direction, this is, I think, primarily, this is the stuff that makes uh, stories uh, captivating. Um, when the protagonist is of two minds, just clearly uh, raises emotions. This, you know, raises all kinds of issues that are there, and I think um, I think that's important. Um, action films often don't do that. That is, they are all about interpersonal conflict. Uh, you have a good guy and a bad guy. You have the protagonist and you have the antagonist, and um, that's a kind of simpler uh, cognitive structure uh, to deal with. And so action films can make lots of assumptions that uh, make their storytelling a little bit easier than uh, the storytelling that you might have in other films. And so taking everything that we've talked about here in terms of the structure of the, the stories that we see in film and all of the elements that we've talked about in terms of connecting on an emotional level with story. 
how do you think we might be able to translate all of this into a business context to be able to bring those success uh, when walking around in a, in the business world? Sure. Um, this is the when you uh, when you ask that question. This is one that uh, I probably feel uh, uh, least expert in, in answering, but. My one guess is that the business world already knows these kinds of things anyway. I mean, story formula have been around for uh, centuries, if not uh, millennia, and in business, and of course business has been around for at least that uh, period of time, so I'm not sure that there's anything particularly new here. But, uh, but there is one thing, um, that is when you have a story, most stories are uh, about a single or a small number of protagonists and they they work their way through things and and if you watch um, news programs doesn't matter whether it's in the US or whether it's BBC or elsewhere there's often a kind of um, public interest kind of thing where you interview uh, a few people uh, they have statements that they want to make and then you try to generalize to the current social state or whatever um, and that, you know, that can have the form of a good story, but it's um, at least from my point of view, especially problematic because um, as a scientist, uh, I'm very skeptical of uh, anecdotes, uh, individuals talking about larger issues in society. Um, I think we really need data and that's, you know, voting is really all about uh getting large uh, bits of data, but um, in businesses, if you, um, if you want to know, you know, how your product works, um, then you need a lot of data. So, I mean, I guess I would point to uh, uh, Google or uh, Amazon or any of these places that do this A-B testing and, and you log on and do, uh, you know, change the screen or you have some options that are a little bit different and you get thousands upon thousands of um, responses uh, in different kind of cases, and that's real hard data that you can use to refine uh, your product. And it's not really about a story, it's, it's about finding out how things do. So I think there is a danger in, um, in the story uh, if you want to sell a product to a wide number of people. Um, However, I think, you know, businesses, they know this. They know that they target audiences. They, uh, um, they have a very good idea of uh, the story they want to tell to different sets of people. And, of course, this is fairly new over the last 25 years or so. So I think if, if we can combine the, uh, the statistics and the, and the large data and turn that into... Uh, far more than an anecdote into a, into a well-told, well-structured emotional story, then we might have the uh, the keys to success there. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. So, uh, just a couple of quick-fire questions, if uh, if that's okay, James. Sure. To your mind, who would you say is the greatest storyteller of all time, and why? Um, I I in thinking about this, I find myself. A, a prisoner of my own time and place. And so, yeah, I could talk about Aesop, I could talk about uh, Hazar Afsan, uh, uh, the source for many of uh, the Scheherazade Thousand and One Night stories. I could talk about Chaucer or Shakespeare or Beatrix Potter or 
or whatever. But but storytelling, when I think about it, is basically an oral tradition. Uh, and everything else is uh, sort of parasitic on the oral oral tradition. And so it's a performance, and a storyteller should have, in my view, a really good voice. So the two storytellers that I find um, most persuasive to me are um, uh, Studs Terkel, um, who was a, uh, a radio host for 40 years in Chicago. And he told stories and interviewed people uh, all the time. And Studs Terkel had this wonderful kind of raspy voice. And the raspiness of the voice, I think, was very important. Um, and, and the other person is Martin Luther King. I mean, Martin Luther King had this incredible delivery, um, comes right out of the black church in the U.S., amazingly influential, amazingly stirring. You know, it's hard not to have an emotional response to that. And it's a performance. Tells good stories. Uh, and I think one of the, <clears throat> one of the people... I would like to include is the American humorist uh, Samuel Clements or Mark Twain, but there are no existing um, uh, tracks of his own voice, uh, at least none that we've been able to find. And there are descriptions of his voice and, you know, he had supposedly this uh, slightly, uh, the Southern accent with slight, um, you know, homey flavor and slightly, you know, perhaps a deep voice and, and everybody who's performed the Mark Twain stories has always had a voice that's like that. But we have no idea what Mark Twain's voice was. And so without actually hearing his voice, I'm unwilling to say that uh, he was uh, uh, one of the greatest storytellers of all time. I think the performance, the oral aspect is, is, is incredibly important. And can you recommend any good books or websites or blogs or podcasts on storytelling? I'm focused on movies. Uh, and so uh, I realize there's a whole bunch of stuff out there that's on literature and other kinds of things. But the person I read most about movies um, is uh, David Bordwell. Uh, and he has a blog called Observations on Film Art. And a lot of what he writes uh, is about the stories that are told uh, in movies. And so, yeah, I mean, I think, think he is, I, I regard him as uh, almost certainly the most important film historian alive today. And he tells good stories. And finally, where can we find out more about you? Uh, and where can we find you online? <laughs> so if you just went on Google and you typed in James Cutting Cornell, uh, you'll find me. I'll be the first listed uh, thing there. If you just type in James Cutting, you're likely to get uh, uh, English football players or other people that um, uh, might be more interesting than me, <laughs> but uh, uh, are not me. I'm sure that's not the case, and I'm sure we'll, uh, we'll have a search and find you online. So <laughs> I can't, can't thank you enough for today, James. It's been fascinating talking to you. Thank you for coming online. And, thank you. Uh, and having a chat with us, and we'll speak to you again soon. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Rule the World. Be sure to rate, review and subscribe to the show and visit weareopusmedia.com for more resources based on today's topic, as well as access to more episodes that will help you develop your storytelling abilities. That's weareopusmedia.com. Thank you and see you next time.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.